Man, it is good to see you all. Good to be in the house of the Lord together declaring the worth of Jesus' name. Um, for those of you I don't know, my name is Kondo, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mission Point. And as Matt said earlier, special welcome to those of you who are guests with us. We really do recognize it's a big deal. It takes a special brand of courage to walk into a new environment with no guarantee of what level of sanity uh, you're going to run into when you get here. But we trust that you've been blessed and, and we trust you continue to be blessed and that uh, you leave this place most impressed and most impacted by the person of Jesus Christ. So glad you're here. And for those of you who call Mission Point home, so good to be together. Um, again this morning. Um, I get to start a four-week series um, of conversations that we are calling Unsung. Unsung. And uh, we've been looking forward to this series. In this series, we're going to spend some time getting to know some characters in the Bible who didn't quite make the highlight real. They never quite made it to superstar status. We're going to meet some people who weren't necessarily historically famous, but what we want to get a sense of very quickly is that they were heavenly famous. Because for the short moments that they got to live and for the short moments uh, that they got to play a part, they stepped into those moments and made the most of those moments to make the most of the name of God. And even though history didn't herald them, we know that heaven applauded them. We know that heaven appreciated them. And what we want to do in this series is learn to share that same value, that even though historically we may never be known, and even though we might not make the highlight reel of history, that if heaven applauds, and if heaven approves, and if we are heaven famous, then we have lived well. And this is so important, particularly in an era in which we live, in which really fame equals significance. Uh, we really believe this. We really believe that the more famous you are, the more significant you are, and then somehow the more value you carry. And that's why I can say, oh my goodness, I met a, a, a teacher who works with special ed students, and most people would be like, oh, hey. Um, and then I'll say, oh my goodness, it's T. Swift. And everyone's like, ah! And the immediate assumption is she must be more important and she must be more significant because she stands on bigger stages and she has a larger Twitter following. Or I may say, hey, behold Nana. Nana prayed faithfully to call heaven down on her family for 25 plus years. And we're like, oh, hey, Nana. And then I'm like, oh, and behold Francis Chan. Ah! Because he stands on stages and he wrote books, and that must mean in heaven he's more significant. Or we might say, hey, let me introduce you to one of the, the, the volunteers who's working with our kids in the kids' wing. And you'd be like, oh, hey, and there's Pastor Conda. Oh, well, surely he must be more important because he stands on stages and he speaks to the big kids. Heaven must be approving more loudly. But what we want to see in this series, it is not about the approval and the applause of man. It is not about how history heralds you. It is ultimately about how heaven evaluates your life. And our desire is to figure out what does it look like for us in the brief moments we have, whether they're on big stages or whether they're in subtle, quiet moments, to make the most by making much of the name of our God. 
So this morning, uh, we want to meet a, a character, uh, an impressive man who didn't necessarily get a whole lot of press. In fact, when we meet him here in a moment, his story is tucked away in the story of a much more famous, much more well-known character named David. And this guy's name is Uriah. Now, I've been so struck and stirred by Uriah, and I trust that you will be as well, and I trust that many of you, like myself, will start to think like, oh, why didn't I name my son Uriah? But there's still time, so um, we'll, we'll see what happens um, with that. But it's a man I trust will learn an immense amount from. And so let's get introduced to him. And uh, this guy, his story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, so feel free to turn there. Um, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, no worries. We're going to have the verses up here on the screen. If you don't own um, a, a Bible, a physical copy of the Bible, please allow us the pleasure of giving you an early Christmas gift. Uh, if at the end of this service you head to the connection corner right outside those back doors, uh, there'll be somebody glad to hand you a Bible, our gift to you. We would love for you to have a copy of the scriptures. But we're going to meet this character um, unsung hero named Uriah. And we're going to start reading in verse 1, and we're just going to kind of work our way um, into this story uh, little by little. Second Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse number 1. Here's what it says. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, the commander of his military force, out with the king's men, and while out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they, the army, destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. David remained in Jerusalem. Uh, so this verse actually helps to set up the scene onto which this unsung hero named Uriah steps. Um, David, little shepherd boy, um, giant killer, is now all grown. And he is King David, the king of Israel, the single most powerful man on the planet. David, when we get to 2 King, 2 Samuel chapter 11, he is at the peak of his reign. He is a military genius who has managed to absolutely extinguish any would-be opponent that has tried to step up to him. In fact, his latest conquest um, came um, <laughs> at the hands of the, you know, the, the Ammonites who are named in this verse. But the Ammonites, uh, one of his enemy nations, said, hey, David is a powerful guy. And so they got together with a couple of other nations around them and said, hey, let's form an alliance because if we can join forces and combine our powers, then we are going to be able to take Take David out. Mm, false. Long story short, butts were severely kicked. Names weren't even taken. It was such a one-sided affair. David just outsmarted, outwitted them, and absolutely pummeled them. And so now the Ammonites, you know, their alliance friends have bailed and they're running. And the Ammonites are beaten up and bruised and depleted in strength. And so they're running back home, retreating to the capital city of Rabbah. And now they're just waiting for David to come and 
finish them off. But what they don't realize is back home, David has called a time out on the war. And he sent all of his troops back to Jerusalem because, ooh, it's starting to get a little chilly. David knows winter is coming, and he doesn't want to lose any of his men to the winter. And so he says, time out, let's go back home. So when 2, King, 2 Samuel chapter 11 opens, verse 1 announces, uh-oh, the weather has warmed up. It is springtime again. Time for David to call time in and get back to war. But uncharacteristically, David does something that he normally doesn't do. And it says in this verse, but David remained in Jerusalem. So he sent his military forces to go and finish off the Ammonites. But David stays in Jerusalem. The language, by the way, is so indicting. But David, it's making very clear that David was supposed to go to war, but instead David chose to stay home. And I can imagine David's mindset, like... um, What's the point? I'm David, baby. I'm the most powerful man on the planet. I eat Ammonites for lunch. They're a snack. I, listen, I am the franchise warrior. You, you don't understand. Like, I'm going to rest my starter, and I am the starter. I don't need to go against the Ammonites. They're a C-level team. I don't even need to go. I have destroyed greater nations than this. So I think I have earned myself a well-deserved little hall pass. I'm staying home for this one. And it says, but David stayed in Jerusalem. The problem is that when a warrior is not at war, he gets bored. The problem is that when a follower of Jesus Christ is not on mission, they get bored. And it's amazing how many of our darkest seasons of life start simply because we were not in the place we were supposed to be that the Spirit called us to. And David is soon about to find out that this undefeatable king is about to step into a spiral of defeat simply because he chose to be where he ought not to have been. And the problem with being where you're not supposed to be is you end up where you shouldn't have been. Enter Bathsheba. Mm. Okay, let's meet Bathsheba, because things are about to get super interesting for David. It says in verse 2, one evening, uh, David got up from his bed and walked around. Okay, first of all, this military warrior genius is sleeping until the evening. That's a problem in and of itself. And he walked around on the roof of his palace. Nothing wrong with walking around on his fancy private balcony, except he should have been at war. And it's from the roof that he saw a woman bathing. Nothing necessarily wrong with what you see. The woman was very beautiful. But it's not what David saw. It's what he did. It says David sent someone to find out about her because he didn't just see this dude stared. And staring turned into a desire that his heart must have. And so he sent someone to find out about the woman. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. 
Then David sent messengers to get her. He summoned her. And she came to him, and David used, leveraged his power as the king, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. So while Uriah fights David's war on the battlefield, David takes Uriah's wife into his bedroom. Verse 5. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. David freaks out. He's in the prime of his career. This is the highest moment in his reign. He has no time for this drama. And so immediately, this mastermind starts to plot the most elaborate of cover-up schemes. And it's pretty brilliant. Check out what David does, verse 6. And so David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. So the, the, the scene essentially shifts from the balcony and the bedroom now to the battlefield. And it's there on the battlefield that we first meet this unsung hero named Uriah. He's referred to here as Uriah the Hittite. And immediately his name is spoken here in this verse. Uh, uh, we start to fall in love with this guy. I, I, I want my kids to be like this guy. I, I want to learn what it looks like for us as a church to be like this guy. I want to personally emulate this guy a little bit. Uriah the Hittite. Immediately his name is even spoken. We start to learn something about his faith. His faith. Because even in the way he's named here in this section of Scripture, we learn something about him. And what we discover about his faith is, number one, this guy is a foreigner. Uh, Uriah is a foreigner. Um, it refers to him as the Hittites. The Hittites were a people group that lived in Canaan when Israel came in to take over the promised land. And if you remember the story, those of you who might know it, God explicitly told the Israelites, when you get into Canaan, I want you to obliterate every living thing. Make no exceptions. Which technically means the Hittites should have been extinct. But somehow, in God's providence, there was some disobedience, some rebellious Israelites who did not follow through with the instructions. And the Hittites survived. And generations later, this miracle guy named Uriah was born. A foreigner. Which means he was born as an enemy to the people of God. He, he was born as an enemy to God himself. He had no part in the blessings of God's people. He had no claim to the benefits of being one of God's chosen. He was a foreigner. I love this guy. Um, because when we meet this foreigner... He is 
fighting. We also learn, obviously, he's a fighter. This is marvelous to me. Because what this tells us is this guy is on the battlefield, meaning at some point he had become convinced that the God of the Israelites was a great God. And so he fell on his knees and he pleaded with his God to include him among his people. And he pledged his allegiance, not just to their God, but to their people, to their king. And he wasn't just you know, a member of their people who now belonged. He was so bored in that Uriah was willing to lock arms with his brothers and go to war to fight for his king for the sake of the name of his God, this foreigner. And we learn something about his I like this guy. And I don't think I like him just because he reminds me of me a little bit. But all right, he reminds me of you guys a little bit as well. Because remember, do you remember how we were all born foreigners to the kingdom of heaven? Do you remember how we were born enemies of God? Do you remember how because of our sin we were technically supposed to be extinct? Do you remember how we had no place among the people of God? Do you remember how we had no claim to the blessings of heaven? We had no rights to the benefits of God's chosen people. And yet on account of the gospel, we became convinced that the God of the Bible is the true God. And we fell on our knees and we pleaded with him to include us among his people. And we didn't just plead with him, we then pledged allegiance to this God. And all of a sudden, we now belong. And all of a sudden, heaven's blessings belong to us. All of a sudden, we are a part. This guy challenges us. Because here's the question. I mean, since we had no business laying claim to the benefits of heaven and to the blessings of God, the question is, now that he has included us, and now that he has forgiven us, and now that he has called us his own, are we uriahing with our lives? I mean, I'm just asking you. Are you grateful for his grace and his forgiveness and the ways that he's included you among his people to the point that you will now lock arms with your brothers and sisters and you will march into the darkest of battlefields in order to make great the name of God? I'm just asking. Is this how you are living your life on a mission? Carrying his light into the darkness. Is this you? Do you go into your school and do you go into your workplace to, to declare and to announce your rescuer? I love this about Uriah. We learn about his faith right from the onset of meeting him. Do you walk towards injustice and poverty to wage love and to wage because listen, whatever else is true about you, please hear me. If you have never pleaded with God to make you a part of his people, and if you've never pledged your allegiance to the God of the Bible, and if you are not living your life 
to fight to make his name great. It doesn't matter how historically famous you are. It doesn't matter how many likes you have on Instagram. It doesn't matter what anybody else says about you because heaven is not particularly impressed. And yet I love this guy. When history doesn't really care who he is, he's on the battlefield fighting for the God who has rescued him. And history may not think much of him, but heaven applauded this guy. Uriah the Hittite sold out to God, sold out to his name, willing to fight and die for him. Uh, more than that, by the way, I, I think we learn about Uriah's friendship. Now, I recognize that this is not in this verse, but it, it, should, it should be. Don't tell God I said that about the Scriptures. But, but here's the interesting thing about Uriah that we learn from other passages of, of Scripture. Um, David had a, a very exclusive inner circle of trusted friends and fierce warriors. They were referred to as the mighty men. These guys earned that trust, and they earned that status on David's inner circle because most, if not all of them, had run, and they had hidden, and they had fought with David when he was on the run from King Saul, when King Saul was trying to kill him. There is a group of men who before David became king, before David became this military genius, before David became famous, they journeyed with him in the darkest of caves, and they had become his closest friends and confidants. And one of those men was a foreigner named Uriah. He was one of those guys who said to David before he was king, I got you. Which probably explains why Uriah lives that close to David's palace, in case you've ever wondered. And it also explains why he's not going to be surprised necessarily that he's being summoned to come back to Jerusalem to see David. But I love this, that long before we know anything about this guy, he is that faithful friend who stuck with David through the sick and through the sin. And I don't know how you would consider yourself. I don't know who would consider you that Uriah. I don't know who would consider you the friend who says, I got you, regardless of what you're journeying through, regardless of what pain you might be experiencing. I love Uriah, the friend. So he gets this message from David. Um, it's not particularly a surprise. Um, the timing is a little odd, though, um, but whatever. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, to David, that is, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Super awkward. Hey, Uriah, you dog, um, what's good? How are things? I imagine Uriah is pretty confused. I'm sorry. I am a monster on the battlefield, and you're turning me into a messenger? Since when did I get summoned to give a report about the war? 
In either case, David is just asking a bunch of throwaway questions that he doesn't really care about, which is one of the reasons the author doesn't even, you know, let us know how Uriah answered him, because it doesn't really matter. What really mattered was what David was about to get to here in verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and (laughs) wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. Ah! Now it becomes clear what David's plan was. Entrapment. Just to be clear, uh, David is telling Uriah to go home uh, so that he can watch some Netflix and do some chilling. Because here's what David understands. David understands that when a soldier has been on the battlefield for a minute and he comes home and he sees his beautiful wife for a moment, things are bound to get very interesting. So David is hoping that Uriah will go home and he'll see Bathsheba and then he'll sleep with Bathsheba and in an era before paternity test, eight months or so later, no one will have a clue whose child this really is. Brilliant mastermind that David is. But if you weren't already impressed with Uriah, the foreigner, the fighter, the friend, we are about to be, because his response makes him a rare, rare man. It doesn't seem like he says anything to David. He just walks out. And then verse 9. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. What? Nuh-uh. I mean, can you say integrity? Because, again, I want to be a little bit more like this guy. I want my kids to be a little bit more like this guy. And I'd love our church to be a little bit more like this guy. This unsung hero did what? See, the king just gave him a hall pass. I mean, you've been battling on the field. It's been tough. It's been difficult. And now you have pleasure at your fingertips. And you did what? No one's even watching you, bro. He refuses to go home. This is a hero. This is an unsung hero. And if there's any confusion or question about it, look at the reasons he gives why he doesn't go home. This is just plain impressive. Verse 10. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, um, okay, haven't you just come from a military campaign, really tough? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Man, we learn not just about this man's faith. We learn not just about his friendship, but we learn about his principles. This is unbelievable. Again, I don't know 
how history will remember him. But heaven? Uriah says the ark, which represented the, the presence of God, it doesn't have a permanent home. It lives in a tent. And not to mention, my people, which is crazy for this foreigner to say, my, my people, my commander, Joab, and my brothers in arms, they are out in the field roughing it right now. I can't go and enjoy pleasure and, and enjoy ease while they are in a difficult situation. That is a principled man. And it's not even like if he had gone home, he would have been doing something wrong in and of itself. But he knew it was springtime, and springtime is wartime. Springtime is not pleasure time. There's a time for that, but this is not it. And in this moment, in this crazy juxtaposition, this no-name unsung hero proves to be more principled than the king after God's own. It's wartime. I can't go home. David is like, you know what? It's wartime. I'm staying home on this one. I love this. Because it's a reminder in his principles that heaven heroes, they're not made under the lights. They're not made on the big stages. Heaven heroes are not made behind social media filters. Heaven heroes are made in the dark when nobody else is watching. Uriah. What kind of hero are you, by the way? Who are you in those moments at night when you feel embattled and you feel a little bit exhausted and now pleasure is at your fingertips and no one is even watching you? Who are you then? Uriah, the principled. I mean, who are you when you have the right to enjoy comfort and you have the right to enjoy ease? Who are you when you have the right to enjoy your reputation and everybody thinks you are awesome, but it occurs to you that your brothers who share your blood, your sisters who share your blood, who live not too far from you, are going through some painful times and their reputation is taking a hit and they're suffering and struggling, who are you then? Who are you? I mean, when, when you're the cool kid at school, but you realize that the other kids are roughing it, they're being mistreated. Uriah was the guy who says, I will put my own pleasure, I will put my own rights on pause for the sake of my brothers who are suffering and who are struggling. He's the kind of guy who says, even though no eye is watching me, heaven is watching me. And that's reason enough for me to say it is wartime. It is not ease time. 
And I'm going to do what's right and what's pleasing to the God to whom I've sworn my allegiance. Who are you? What kind of hero are you? When you realize there are families in our county who don't know where meals will come from this winter. Who are you? I love this guy. Gladly puts his pleasure and comfort and ease on hold. And he gladly does what's right, even when it's dark and he's tired and no one is watching. And that night, I don't know what history said, but heaven roared for this no-name foreigner. Uriah's response, by the way, is so godly and so compelling that David cannot find a way to disagree with it. So the brilliant mind that he is, he just moves right on to plan B, verse 12. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. Somehow, again, he leveraged his royal power and made him drunk. But in the evening, (laughs) Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Man! I don't know if I mentioned how much I want to be like this guy. And in this moment, we learn not just about his principles, but we learn about his godliness. See, because godliness isn't just the thing you do every now and then. Godliness is what bleeds out of you under pressure. David somehow manages to get Uriah drunk. And yet, even with his lowered inhibitions, his character and his principles bleed through. That's a godly man. He is godlier drunk than David is sober. And heaven is roaring for this guy. He holds to his principles even under this pressure. In fact, the pressure brings the principles more pronouncedly out of him. See, it's amazing how often we will excuse our behavior and we'll give ourselves passes when we are drunk. Okay, I don't literally mean when we are are drunk, but but what I do mean is is this. We love to kind of, you know, cut ourselves a, a little bit of slack in the moments when we feel like, ah, people will understand I was under a lot of pressure. I mean, I had lost my job. Things were really difficult. You get it, right? I mean, work had been really, really stressful. So I got home and, man, I just don't know. You understand what you do when you're stressed. And so, you know, I, I was under some pressure. I just got some really difficult family news. You get it. So that gave me a little permission to make a few exceptions, to give myself a, a little permission. I mean, you know, I've endured such a hard marriage. It's been rough, girl. I've told you, right? Yeah. 
it has. See? So therefore, if I take one night, though, to just go home under pressure and just give in to the pleasure at my fingertips, I mean, you get it. I'm under pressure. I'm a little tipsy. I'm a little drunk. It's not been easy. I mean, normally I wouldn't do this, but I'm a little tired. Dad, you don't understand. That kid provoked me, and so that's why... We love to act like godliness takes a break when I'm under pressure, when I'm under duress. Not Uriah. He makes no excuses, makes no exceptions. He is principled even when he's alone. And he's godly even when he's under pressure. This is a hero. Heaven is roaring for this guy. He did not make the highlight reel in history. But in heaven, though, what kind of pressured person are you, by the way? Man, if we had time and this was a safe place and we were all honest and us dads started to talk about it, it was a long day at work. So when I came home, of course, I snapped on my kids. In fact, mom will even help. She'll say, guys, he's under pressure. Leave him alone because you know how he gets. How does he get? What does pressure bring out of him? You don't understand. The projects were so heavy and they were so difficult. So surely I've earned myself the right to just, just cut a little. Okay, listen, you don't understand. I've exercised and I've exercised, but I'm under some stress. So surely one binge, though, you get it. I love this guy, even under pressure, his godliness emerges. But while heaven is cheering, David is frustrated by this man's integrity. He's frustrated by this man's godliness. He's frustrated by this man's principles. The very principles, by the way, which explain why he was one of David's most trusted men. Because he was trustworthy. And so David resorts to the worst imaginable measure. He orders his faithful friend's murder. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah, which is just, how morbid is that? And how trustworthy is the guy, by the way, you sent his death sentence with him knowing he's not going to open it. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him, abandon him. The same guy who refused to abandon you guys and slept on the hard concrete. So he will be struck down and die. So sad. Verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. He was there on that battlefield, fighting with his brothers in arms, fighting for his king, fighting for the honor of his God's name. 
that he was betrayed and died. And yet, even in his death, a heroic man. I don't know if it struck anybody else. I know it struck me. I was so struck by this. That the same guy who refused to go home to enjoy a night of pleasure rushed to the fiercest part of the battle under the greatest pressure. No, I'm not going to go and enjoy pleasure, but sure, I'll go to the most painful and the most dangerous part of the battle in order to fight with my brothers and fight for my king and fight for my God. Where are people like this? What an incredible man. And once again, cannot help but hear heaven roar as this guy did his heroic thing. I, I, I can't imagine. I don't know what history did with him and his death, but I can only imagine that the entrance he received when he walked into heaven was unlike he would have imagined. Because historically, he may have been an, oh, hey, but in heaven, he was a hero. And even though Uriah died needlessly, I love the story of God's redemption because Uriah did not die uselessly. His death was not useless. His death actually started a sequence of events which has trickled down through the generations and has led to us being here in this room this very morning. Little did he know that his death would leave a widow, and God would heal that widow, and he would turn Bathsheba into the great, 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 great grandmother of his own warrior, his own fighter, Jesus himself. One who is much like Uriah. And then it occurs to me, I think that's why we love this guy. And I think that's why he's a hero. Because besides his faith and his friendship, and besides his principles, um, besides the way this guy lived under pressure, it's the fact that he is so Christ-like. Full of integrity. By the way, have you ever thought about him? And it's Christmas time coming up, and so we tend to think a little bit more about Jesus. But have you ever thought about the integrity of Jesus? It strikes me. When you think about his life between the birth and between the baptism of Jesus, it's like for the better part of 30 years, what did Jesus do? In those moments when nobody knew who he was, he didn't have any Twitter followers, he wasn't standing under the spotlights, he wasn't healing anybody, no one cared who this carpenter's son was. What we find out is that during those years, every single day, during the darkest hours, he obeyed his God when no one was watching, he honored his God when no one was paying attention. He befriended those who nobody else wanted to befriend, and he hung out with the outcasts. He refused to enjoy the pleasure of heaven while people on earth suffered, and so he walked among the hurting. We know that Jesus lived a life full of integrity. We know that Jesus lived this life of a faithful friend, and we know that he was like Uriah, this fierce fighter who would fight in war for the freedom of his people and for the sake of his God. And finally, <laughs> Jesus' integrity drove the authorities so crazy that they signed his murder warrant. 
and in those last moments of his life, the people Jesus had come to rescue withdrew from him. They abandoned him on the very front lines. And yet even there, under pressure, on the cross, the moments when you think Jesus would say like, all right, all right, listen, surely you understand. I'm suffering here, so if I, if I cuss a little, I mean, you get it, right? But Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what to do. Even under the greatest duress, the greatest pressure, what Jesus bled physically and figuratively was godliness. I think Uriah reminds us of Jesus who put his own heavenly comfort on hold and was willing to suffer loss to bring about justice for the oppressed and to bring glory to the name of his God. Because what matters most, it's not the stages, it's not the lights, it's not the likes. What matters most is not whether you were known by a bunch of people and everybody knew all the cool things you did. What matters most is did you remind heaven of Jesus like Uriah did? Whether people are watching or whether people are not. Whether people know who you are or people don't care. Whether you end up being lifted up or whether you end up being taken out. And I'm just telling you, we will either live to be heroes in history, or we will live to be heroes in heaven. And I promise you, one of those matters eternally more than the other. We will either live to be sung on earth, or to be applauded in heaven. And our hope in this series, honestly, is that we'll become a little more convinced that what matters most is not what everyone sees. It's not what you do when everyone sees you. It's not what everyone celebrates. It's what heaven sees, and it's what heaven applauds, because we look a little more like Jesus. And so props to you moms who day in and day out love on your kiddos when no one is watching or posting about it. And frankly, you want to take a nap for like six days because you're tired. You are battle-worn. And yet, nonetheless, on the front lines, you, in honor of the God who rescued you, are shaping a generation. Heroes. Keep going. Heaven is applauding. For you volunteers who just rocked some babies in the last hour, and no one knows your name, and you don't do it because people after church, you know, post a clip of you rocking a baby. It's not because people get on Facebook, if church was awesome today, the kids' volunteers were the best. You do it because you were a foreigner who's been included among the people of God, and now you want to step into the front lines and make his name great, and even though no one thanks you, heaven applauds you. Keep going. That's heroic. To those of you who are filling out paperwork and you're filling, out, you're filling your homes with kids who have no place to be. Trying to put the foster care system out of business. And no one cares who you are. No one knows who you are. But heaven is applauding because that is heroic. For those of you students who stand with the kids at school or who are being mistreated, when no one else does, 
Your name may never be read over the loudspeakers, but in heaven there is a cheer squad just for you. That's heroic, and we want to continue to press into that. Those of you who are just the most amazing and faithful friends who go into the caves with people who are under pressure just to be with them, and no one knows who you are, but heaven is applauding you. You may never be famous. You have zero Twitter followers. But heaven is saying, you remind us of Jesus. And to that person who is under pressure and experiences loneliness and feels temptation at night, to just give in to pressure, to just, you know, pleasure at your fingertips. Or, you know, that substance that will help you forget. You know, that, that porn binge that will distract you for a moment. And yet, even when no one is watching, and none of us know how close last night was. And yet godliness bled out of you. And heaven is applauding you. That is heroic. I don't know what ways a spirit wants to speak to the different ones of us. And to invite us to lay aside our culture's obsession with being famous in history. And cause us to become obsessed with being famous in heaven because we look like the most famous one, Jesus Christ himself, whether people are watching or people are not. I don't know what ways he wants to invite you into that, but our hope and our prayer is that as we walk this journey together, we'll become more and more convinced that what matters most is the applause and the approval of heaven. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. Us. Thank you for including us among your people. Thank you for including us under your blessing. Help us in grateful response to be willing to stand for you, to fight for you, whether people are watching or people are not. Help us, Lord, to long to be more godly and to bleed godliness as your spirit continues to transform us. We want to be like Jesus. We want to look like Jesus, primarily to heaven. And we know, Lord, that when we do, we'll inevitably shape history, whether in small ways or big ways. Thank you, Jesus, for your example to us. 